2: From the Mom Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. A new mass vaccination site opened this week. It's bus, train, and pedestrian friendly in a community hard hit by the pandemic. But find out why this place is organized with military-level precision. Plus, the last time the governor of California was recalled was 2003, but that doesn't mean recall elections are rare. Find out why ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us today. Coming up, the movement to recall Governor Gavin Newsom is gathering some steam. We're going to check in on that process and also hear about some of the no-bid contracts his administration has handed out during the pandemic. That's just ahead. But first... President Biden has said he wants to get 150 million people vaccinated in the first 100 days in office. And as part of that effort, yesterday, about 200 troops began giving vaccinations at Cal State Los Angeles. KPCC's Sharon McNary was there. Hello, Sharon. Hey there. All right. So tell us uh, everything you saw out there.
0: Well, I saw something really new, and that's members of the armed forces working to give people their vaccines. You know, you grow up in Southern California, and you go to Disneyland with all the lines, and you get used to that as a standard for crowd control. Mm -hmm. But when I joined the Army after high school, Those people take their logistics to a whole nother level. (laughs) And so that's what I was really noticing yesterday at this mass vaccination center at Cal State L.A. They were getting things done with a real sense of military efficiency. So
2: Sharon, describe that. How did that all work?
0: Well, at the Cal State L.A. Mass Vaccination Center, they're dividing the cars into platoons of 10 cars each, and then those platoons of cars will drive bumper to bumper into a long lane. Then after a few questions and some screening, the medics vaccinate all 10 clients, the passengers of those cars, at the same time. Then they sit there for 15 minutes, and if no ill effects, they get waved on to continue on with their day.
2: So it sounds like you need an automatic transmission for for that line, just (laughs) no standard transmission. So where did the troops come from, Sharon?
0: Well, there were two sets of soldiers there. There were Army soldiers and medics from Fort Carson, Colorado. They arrived last Thursday. And there were also soldiers uh, from my old unit, California Army National Guard, about 200 soldiers in all, and probably another 400 people from law enforcement, college staff, and various other government agencies to help out.
2: Cool. Now, uh, Sharon, uh, you know this. There's been a lot of talk about how slow and confusing the vaccine rollout has been. What might it mean maybe to the overall effort here in L.A. County to have the federal? government involved in this way.
0: This is another step toward the combined state, federal, and local governments building a structure capable of delivering many, many thousands of doses of vaccine a day. We have seen some shortages during the rollout. So the structure to give those vaccines is getting there, and it's increasing. Now it's just waiting for the supply to expand and get everybody into it. Now, there are plans to open more of these federally operated vaccine sites across the country. It's unclear right now whether California might get another one. Uh, There's one other in Alameda County, of course. And then this site at Cal State LA will also become the hub for a series of mobile vaccine clinics to pop up at different places around the LA area for people who can't just get in their car and drive or or go on transit.
2: Can we expect more in California? I know that there's two you mentioned, but any more in the the near future for us?
0: Well, you would think so because we're such a populous state. What I was hearing yesterday was that they planned like 100 of these across the country.
2: Oh, wow, 100. Okay, so hopefully we will get maybe one or two more. Now, the current site at Cal State LA was chosen because it's near communities in East LA that have been uh, really, really pounded by the pandemic. Uh, Will that make a difference, you think?
0: You know, location is important, um, but in addition, they're making an effort to do outreach to the public through many hundreds of community-based organizations that could refer their members for vaccines. Um, This is supposed to be the equity part of it, to get to people who might not have the internet access to get an appointment on their own. So they could have gotten their appointment at the from their church or a senior center or a local health clinic or some other group. This site was also chosen because it's convenient to people who use the train or bus. It's right on the Metrolink train route, the Silver Line uh, metro bus, and other local buses.
2: Now, speaking of the train, the Metrolink, a lot of folks have uh, talked about accessibility issues to vaccine sites. Not everyone, is, as we've talked about, has a car, can drive in Los Angeles. Any sense, Sharon, from talking to people about how much being on that route helps?
0: Um, It does help. I talked to the driver of a local bus that runs between East LA College and Cal State LA. He said that even on the first day of vaccines, he ferried some people to go get their shots. And on campus near the transit center, they've got a shuttle bus driving loops to and from the walk-in vaccine site. Um, So this bus driver said "But the campus is mostly empty during the pandemic. His bus has been pretty empty, too. But he's seeing a little bit more activity with vaccine passengers and, you know, with the people who are working the vaccine site.
2: So how many uh, people got vaccinated that first day?
0: On opening day, they said they were on track to get 3,000 people vaccinated. And you could tell the soldiers were really stoked (laughs) to be there. This is Sergeant First Class Gerardo Guzman.
4: So um, uh, I'm excited to see so many people come out and voluntarily get their their vaccine. It's also a morale boost for all of us that are out here.
2: That's really cool. Now, I'm wondering if these vaccines come from California's allocation. I know that supply has been limited.
0: Supply has been limited, but the doses being given out at the Cal State L.A. place do not come from California's overall supply. It's a separate allocation through the Federal Emergency Management Uh, agency, FEMA. And it's over and above the supply that's been going to sites like Dodger Stadium and the Forum and other city and county-run vaccine places.
2: One last thing, Sharon, considering how accessible this site at Cal State LA seems to be, can people just walk right up or, or do you have to have an appointment for it?
0: This site is still appointment only, but there are also slots for people who sign up through the internet, so you might as well do it. Go to the site, myturn.ca.gov.
2: That's KPCC's Sharon McNary. Sharon, thanks a lot. You bet. All right. Now to the state government. Over the course of the pandemic, the Newsom administration has awarded several contracts to corporations that have provided vital services to the public, such as refurbishing ventilators and distributing masks and vaccines. The problem is that some of these corporations have donated thousands of dollars to Governor Gavin Newsom's political campaigns and their contracts were awarded through a no bid process, raising questions of whether these companies benefited from favoritism and if they are truly the best firms to help California get through this crisis. Reporter Scott Rodd covers state government for Capitol Public Radio in Sacramento, and he's been looking into these contracts. Scott, uh, you cross-referenced these contracts with Governor Newsom's political donors. Uh, can you tell us uh, what you found there and how much money we're talking about?
5: Absolutely. As you mentioned, there were several contracts, specifically four, that jumped out that the companies were major contributors to Newsom uh, in 2019, 2020, or 2021, and received uh, significant contracts under a no-bid condition during the pandemic response. And uh, the the contributions range from tens of thousands of dollars up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the contracts range from, you know, a couple million dollars up to over a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, and it's important to give some context here. Uh, the, the state has entered into a lot of contracts mm-hmm. during the pandemic response. Uh, so it's by no means the majority of contracts, not close to that. But still government ethics experts say this, you know, group, this handful of examples still raises red flags.
2: And Scott, the big one was Blue Shield, right?
5: Uh, That's a big one just in terms of uh, the most, it's the most recent example, and it's a very high profile one. Uh, It's one in which uh, Newsom made what some considered an abrupt announcement in terms of uh, handing over the vaccination distribution efforts to Blue Shield.
2: Now, this uh, handful of contracts uh, awarded uh, using a, a no bid or emergency process. Can you explain how that process works and the challenges and proper oversight that come along with that?
3: Sure.
5: So typically uh, when the state awards a contract, it goes through a bidding process, which means uh, companies can uh, respond to uh, you know basically a request for proposals. They say, this is how we would do things. This is how much it would cost. And that process can take some time. That process can um, you know be somewhat burdensome for the state to process, but there's a reason behind it. And that's to make sure that the state's getting the best deal possible and the most effective uh, services possible, and also to avoid any Actual or appearance of favoritism um, during states of emergency, like the pandemic, or you know things like wildfires, the state's able to enter into contracts by skipping over that process, and in part for good reason. Sometimes you know services are needed immediately, um, and and there just isn't time for. Uh, the bidding process. However, again, that raises questions. And in, in for government ethics folks, they say it really deserves scrutiny to make sure that there isn't favoritism, or again, even the appearance of favoritism happening in these contracts.
2: And Scott, I was going to ask you about that because, yeah, you know, considering the pandemic and the, and the flawed vaccine rollout, I mean, in this particular situation, in this particular point in time, wouldn't no bid contracts make more sense if it speed things up? You know, that's what the, the governor's office has
5: said. And, and I'll read part of their statement to me uh, directly because I think it is important. They said, quote, the governor's administration made the decision to enter into all contracts related to the COVID-19 response based on the best interests of the state and protecting the health and welfare of all of our residents, end quote. And they said, you know, we needed to act quickly. And we just didn't have time for that, you know, lo- sometimes long and drawn out bidding process. So there is a case to be made that, you know, these these contracts have to be executed quickly. That's certainly the case and government ethics experts, you know, they recognize that. Um, but again, um, when, when contracts are handed out without that bidding process, they say there needs to be that added level of certainty and, um, essentially, uh, what they what they criticized the governor for was not coming out and being a bit more forthright and mm-hmm. proactive about saying, hey, this is the process. And, you know, there is an overlap here with contributors, but there isn't uh, there, there isn't any connection to it. That's what uh, government ethics experts were saying was lacking in terms of the state's response during the pandemic.
2: And Scott, I got to admit, uh, when news of uh, Blue Shield came out, uh, I think a lot of people are wondering, how did that happen so fast? And no one seemed to know about it.
5: Sure. And some of those questions still exist. People are wondering, you know, why, why Blue Shield? I mean, they're a big company. They, they have a network of, um, you know, of providers. They, they do have, you know, they're obviously an established company, but without that bidding process, you know, the other thing that, that, that a bidding process does is provide a paper trail of this is how, um, this is what this, the company is proposing. This is how uh, it was approved. And it, and it allows people who have those questions to dig in and say, oh, okay, this is why the state decided it was the best company for the job. Without that, you know, it's hard to track down exactly how these decisions were made, how these contracts were awarded.
2: We're talking to Scott Rod, state government reporter at Capital Public Radio. Uh, Scott, in your article, uh, you write that uh, the vast majority of these contracts were not awarded to donors and didn't go through an expedited process. Uh, the fact that several of them were, though, is that enough, though, to raise questions of a quid pro quo or maybe some other kind of impropriety?
5: Uh, so just quickly, uh, most of them did go through an expedited or no bid process, but you're absolutely right. Most of them did not. There was not an overlap with any major contributors to, to Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, and I brought that to government ethics experts and they say, hey, that's important context, certainly. But, you know, even this handful of examples, that still raises red flags again, in another piece of important context, they said, you know, there's no evidence here of laws being broken, of quid pro quo. That really is a high bar to meet. And frankly, that's that's the area of the legislature if they decided to launch an investigation or other oversight um, commissions with the state to to determine. But what they said was, you know, this is enough to raise questions. It's enough to raise red flags and it's enough to probably raise concerns among Californians. And and that's certainly damage enough right there is what they said.
2: If Governor Newsom- say, wants to answer some of those questions and address some of this. So what could he do to show residents that uh, these contracts were fairly awarded?
5: Well, they have taken some steps after, uh, I'm sure some listeners will remember, uh, a very large contract executed to a company called BYD uh, for about a billion dollars in masks, which is actually one of the companies where the president of the company contributed $20,000 in the months leading up to that um, contract being awarded. After that, the state started putting up online all of the contracts it was entering into for the public to see. So there have been some steps uh, in terms of making this transparent and more publicly available. However, what experts I spoke to said was, you know, it'd be, it'd be it's important for the governor and his, and his administration to make clear that uh, you know make that connection and say, hey, look, if you see an overlap here, th- there is an influence at play, and here's why. Essentially, getting out in front of it and explaining mm-hmm. it. Uh, another individual I spoke to, uh, his name is Bob Stern, uh, longtime political or longtime government ethics expert, said um, the governor should have someone in his office who is essentially combing through contributions and contracts and making sure that this overlap doesn't exist. And if they feel they absolutely have to enter into a contract and the overlap is there, to get out front of it ahead of time.
2: The companies that were awarded these contracts, uh, Scott, how do they address uh, any perception of favoritism or maybe profiting from their uh, donations? They say there's absolutely
5: no connection between their contributions either before or after receiving the contracts and the state awarding them uh, these, these contracts or opportunities. Um, so they say no wrongdoing here. It's completely separate. We support Newsom as uh, a politician and as a candidate, um, but our work with the state is separate from that. And it was in no way meant to influence uh, any awarding of contracts.
2: Have there been any bad outcomes from any of these contracts?
5: Um, You know, there have been some stumbles here and there. Uh, I'll give one quick example. Mm -hmm. BYD, the contract I mentioned before, they promised many masks, surgical and N95 masks. And uh, a couple months after this contract for nine hundred ninety million dollars. Uh, they had difficulty meeting a a specific and important certification. And so they ended up having to return about a quarter billion dollars to the state because they didn't meet the, um, the, the letter of the contract. Now, they did start delivering masks. The state was satisfied with their performance. So they ended up extending that contract for another $300 million. So there have been some stumbles like that, but none that have crashed and burned by any
2: means. If Gavin Newsom say he can't demonstrate this transparency that people want, I mean, what are the stakes for him? There's this very high profile effort going on right now, Scott, to, to recall him. So wondering, what have donors behind the effort said about this?
5: Uh, you know, absolutely. The recall is um, a big factor here. You know, I reached out to folks behind the recall campaign and they said, look, this is um, more of what we've been saying for the last couple months, for the well, longer than the last couple months for a while now. They, they say that um, their argument is the governor hasn't been very transparent in his time in office, they, that he hasn't been honest with Californians. So they've been jumping on this um, and, and using it to make their case further for the recall. And this recall effort is, is mounting and it's um, looking like... Uh, has a decent shot of being on the ballot. And so, um, you know, certainly the stakes
2: are very high right now. That's Scott Rods, state government reporter for Capital Public Radio. His investigation, Big newsome donors, including Blue Shield, received no bid contracts during COVID-19 response, is on capradio.org. That's capradio.org. Scott, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, as you heard, uh, that Newsom recall effort does seem to be gaining steam. The number of signatures keeps piling up. The deadline now a month away. Last time this happened to a California governor was nearly two decades ago. But the thing is, recall elections are a lot more common than you might guess. Find out how when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
6: How to L.A. is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history.
1: The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding.
6: It's politics.
2: It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country.
6: And it's food.
4: Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just
6: everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. All the leaves are brown And the sky is grey I went for a walk On a winter's day I'd be saving more If I was there. Such
2: a Back now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on kpcc.org. I'm Amy Martinez. We mentioned a little earlier that recall effort against Governor Gavin Newsom. Well, the clock is ticking on that campaign and organizers of the Recall Gavin 2020 campaign say they've just hit a major milestone. One point five million signatures collected. Now, if you recall, that's the minimum number needed to get on the ballot. Now. I know there's still a long way to go, as election officials still need to validate all of those signatures. But they're reporting this well ahead of their March 17th deadline, and that's now just a month away. So. Just how big of a deal is this, and what would a successful recall campaign mean for the future of our state? For more on this, we turn to Joshua Spivak. He is a senior fellow at the Hugh L. Carey Institute for Government Reform at Wagner College and also the founder of the Recall Elections blog. Now, just mentioned, uh, the recall campaign organizers are claiming that they have passed the signature threshold needed to get on this ballot. Uh, Joshua, how significant of a milestone is that?
3: Very significant. Generally, recalls fail because you don't get enough signatures. They're abandoned. Usually that's what happens, or sometimes they're handed in and too many signatures are rejected. So in U.S. history, only four times has a governor received enough signatures to get on the ballot. North Dakota in 1921, Gray Davis in 2003, as everybody probably remembers, or may remember, and Scott Walker in 2012 in Wisconsin. Additionally, there was a governor in Arizona, Evan Meacham, who they got enough signatures on in 1988, but he was impeached the same day that it was verified. So to get that level is the very difficult, big challenge. And that's already the big starting point here.
2: Yeah, it seems like it takes a stamina to uh, keep the recall effort going, especially with the signature stamina and resources, because you need people to get those signatures. Now, still a chance, though, that some of these signatures could get disqualified, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Joshua. Can you tell us about that stage of the process and how concerned the recall campaign organizers should be about that?
3: Generally, it's about 10 to 15% of signatures will fail in California, could be higher and something this big. So that's why they're shooting for 2 million signatures. There's also an additional provision that was added in 2017 where signers could strike their names, a signature removal process that will take a month and then another 10 days. And that has worked in other jurisdictions, but generally handing in 2 million signatures, when you need 1.5, should be enough to get it onto the ballot.
2: Now, okay, so it seems like the campaign has a decent chance, at least maybe of getting uh, on the ballot, especially if they've cleared the signature threshold as they claim. What about the chances of succeeding in actually recalling the governor?
3: So here they have a much more hazy future. Getting enough signatures, while it's an achievement and involves money, which they have, and enough people who are willing to sign, which they have. Getting a victory in an election is a much harder challenge. So compare it with Gray Davis. When Gray Davis won election in 2002, he got 47 percent of the vote. So he was already three percent behind the eight ball by the time the recall came around. Gavin Newsom got 62 percent.
2: And then, Joshua, remind us of where the actual process goes if the campaign qualifies for the ballot. Voters would have two questions to answer. Is that, That's how it goes. Yes
3: this is what I'd call a one-day, two-step process. So there is a up or down vote on Gavin Newsom. Yes, should he be recalled or no, should he stay? If he is removed, then there is a separate vote on the same day for replacements. And that is probably going to be a circus. Uh, Last (laughs) time, we had 135 people. I would not be surprised if it's much more than that this time, and that's a what's called the first-past-the-post-election. First person who comes out on top wins, whether it's 50% or whether it's 15% that person would be the governor.
2: And Joshua, just wondering about what minimum requirement is needed for a candidate who wants to try to be in this recall election. Is there a, some kind of minimum bar that they must meet?
3: It's not a high bar. As you can see, there were 135 people last time, from Arnold Schwarzenegger, the eventual winner, to Ariana Huffington, to Gary Coleman from Different Strokes, to a famous porn star, all Mary Carey, They were all on that ballot. So it didn't take. The bar is never that high to get on the replacement race. We're speaking
2: with Joshua Spivak, senior fellow at the Hugh L. Carey Institute for Government Reform at Wagner College, also the founder of the Recall Elections blog. We've seen some reporting now about some potential GOP contenders hoping to get into the race, such as uh, ex-San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner. No word yet, though, if another Democrat could step in as a backup to Governor Gavin Newsom, should he be recalled. Joshua, how likely do you think that outcome would be?
3: Well, that does happen, that a somebody in the same party would then win. It happened in 2011 in a Michigan state house race. The person was removed, and then it was actually months later, the replacement was a Republican, so it didn't really help. I think there is A likelihood that somebody would go in, but I think the Democrats would have learned their lesson from last time and try to rally everyone around Newsom and not worry about the replacement race so much.
2: So let's talk about the history of recall elections in California, as well as the rest of the country. How does the process differ here than somewhere else?
3: Well, California actually has a much better developed recall process than most states. The oldest city to have the recall is L.A. The recall actually goes back very far back to 1631 in America, but it was gone after the Constitutional Convention. It, they tried to put it in the Constitutional Convention, it failed, and then it sort of disappeared and was brought back in California. Then the first state was actually Oregon in 1908, but California took it as a state in 1911. So there's been a lot of recalls on the local level here. On the state level, not as much, there's very few recalls in the U.S., but California is second in terms of state legislators. And the first is because Wisconsin had so many in 2011, 2012.
2: Joshua, tell us a little bit about you, because the L.A. Times called you the recall expert. Uh, in a very recent article that I read. How does someone become a recall expert? What grew you in? Why are you fascinated by this very specific thing?
3: A number of subjects that I do find interesting, but the recall I needed a subject to write about in for a master 's thesis, and it turns out there wasn 't too much written about the recall at that time. There was also just a fascinating event in California in one thousand nine hundred and ninety five the california The Republicans won the assembly for the first time in forever, basically, and they won it by a forty one to thirty nine margin and Willie Brown, who was the speaker at the time managed to convince Republicans to switch, one Republican to switch, which led to a recall, actually led to two recalls, one against the Democrat. Then he got another Republican to switch, which led to another recall. This was right before he became San Francisco mayor, but it was such a fascinating event, and watching it play out was really took me in. And since then, I, I wrote some papers, I wrote a master's thesis on it, and eventually I decided to start a blog to compile a list of all the recalls that I could find. At close to the same time, a a website has been doing that. And I also want to write about more detailed instances of the recall, more thoughtful discussion of it. And uh, I guess I've written op-eds in 38 states and uh, five continents. (laughs) And and California
2: got the ball rolling, it sounds like.
3: California got the ball rolling. So all of that has been... (laughs) Uh, you know, has been a push.
2: From all the recall efforts that you have seen, whether they succeed or whether they fail, what does the aftermath typically look like? I mean, I know California's a, a big blue state, but can we look forward to a more divided California once the dust settles on
3: this? To some degree, it does seem like it divides because most of them are on the local level and there's raw feelings. The one issue is 2003. Has California gotten more divided Since then, I would say no. I would say, in fact, uh, that was almost like a last stand by Republicans, by the conservative forces in California. While there's still a lot of them, they have not succeeded, and they haven't won office since Schwarzenegger, and they've basically been blown out of the water in every area. Uh, So in some ways, it actually unified the Democrats, and that could be... The danger
2: here. That's Joshua Spivak, Senior Fellow at the Hugh L. Carey Institute for Government Reform at Wagner College, also the founder of the Recall Elections blog. He's telling us all about the recall campaign. Joshua, thank you very much.
3: Thanks for having me on.
2: The word content has seven letters in it, and it is not obscene. So it should not be classified as a traditional four-letter word, and you know which ones I mean. But for one legendary Oscar-winning filmmaker, the word content in showbiz might as well be an insult, an umbrella word that's killing cinema. Find out who's saying this and why when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
6: My heart was filled with rain, sunny, you smiled at me and really ease the pain, oh the dark days are done and the bright days are here, my sunny one shine so sincere, sunny, sunny one so true, I love you.
2: Back now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Sammy Martinez. Mandalorian star Gina Carano has been fired after sharing controversial social media posts. Plus, China broke box office records over the lunar New Year holiday weekend. For more on this, it's time to go on the lot.
3: Hey, Pick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate?
0: All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up.
2: Back again, as always, is Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. All right, Rebecca, so let's start with the latest on The Mandalorians. Uh, Gina Carano, who was recently fired following uh, some controversial and, and quote, abhorrent social media posts. Uh, So fill us in on Disney's and Lucasfilm's decision here. What happened?
1: (laughs) Well, Carano had become uh, kind of a lightning rod among Star Wars fans and, and a headache for the company after a bunch of tweets in which she mocked mask wearing. She suggested that voter fraud occurred during the 2020 election, and she shared posts that some people uh, saw as transphobic. Um, her relationship with both Lucasfilm and UTA is is over. Both have dropped her after she... Posted something recently suggesting that being a Republican today is akin to being Jewish in the time leading up to the Holocaust. Um, Lucasfilm's statement describing the post called them, as you said, abhorrent and unacceptable. Um, And she, you know, this is interesting because she had apparently been warned by those around her about her social media behavior. um, And she had been potentially in line for a spinoff, which is now no longer happening.
2: Yep, I thought uh, that was going to happen, too, based on the success of The Mandalorian over the past few years. So what's been the response to Disney's decision uh, from fans and stakeholders, and how has uh, Carano herself responded?
1: Well, to some people, this has made Carano, you know, more appealing. On, on the right, you know, Senator Ted Cruz and pundit Ben Shapiro both rose to her defense. Um, and uh, apparently, Carano will be producing a film with with Shapiro's company, The Daily Wire, And she said, quote, I'm sending out a direct message of hope to everyone living in fear of cancellation by the totalitarian mob. I've only just begun using my voice, which is now freer than ever before, and I hope it inspires others to do the same. So that's the response on the right. Um, You know, industry observers note that for a company like Lucasfilm, they sort of were forced to take a stance against behavior like this to signal to employees and fans from marginalized backgrounds that the company values them Um, they they want to set a kind of inclusive and welcoming tone from the very top of the company
2: yeah for them it could be just a simple it's bad for business to have her around right now especially if their fans or slash their customers are complaining about it so what's what's the future now for Corano's character uh, cara dune i mean will lucasfilm recast this role
1: well, Disney spokesperson saying that they won't. Uh, my colleagues at The Hollywood Reporter had heard insiders were expecting the role, t- the role to indeed be recast um, because there's merchandising reasons and story reasons, but Disney's saying that that, that, that won't happen.
2: As long as retro Luke Skywalker stays around. Okay, I might have just spoiled it for everyone that hasn't seen it, but oh well, I'm a spoiler. They've had time, yeah, to they, be fair. They've had, if it's the next day for me, Rebecca, that's that's enough time.
1: That's now, the window you give.
2: Yes, a small window. All right, moving now to a, a new four-part docuseries about uh, the Woody Allen sexual abuse allegations. It's called Allen v. Farrow, and it premieres uh, later this month on HBO. Let's listen to a clip from that trailer.
6: This is the story of two of the biggest stars in the world.
3: The father
2: is Woody Allen, writer, director, actor. The mother is Mia Farrow, his co-star and
4: mother of his three children. Say hi. Hi. My family was really close.
1: It was an amazing childhood. But no matter what you think you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg.
2: So, Rebecca, from one controversial subject to uh, another one that's lasted uh, a few decades now, what can uh, viewers expect going into this series?
1: Well, I have to say as someone who's, you know, covered film for 16 years now, I have read and written a lot about the the Woody Allen, Dylan Farrow story, Mia Farrow story, and I thought I knew a lot about it. Having watched about the first two episodes of this docu-series, I realized there is a whole bunch I didn't know. Um there are interviews with with key figures in it. Including a present-day on-camera interview with Dylan Farrow in which she describes um, the alleged abuse that she uh, suffered at the at the hands of, of Woody Allen. There's also some really harrowing footage that Mia Farrow shot of Dylan when she was a child, describing the abuse, um, you know, just days after it it supposedly happened. And there are interviews with babysitters, family friends, a French tutor. There's the recordings of phone calls between Woody and Mia that took place. After Mia discovered um, nude photos Woody had taken of her other daughter Sunyu Previn, who of course later becomes Alan's wife, um, Alan doesn't participate in the film. His his point of view on events is conveyed via clips from his audiobook, and at the end of each episode there is a title card in, indicating that he's denying any allegations um, that he uh, assaulted anyone or or had uh, sex with anyone underage.
2: Now, the series is directed by Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those filmmakers and their previous work?
1: Well, before Me Too became a movement, Kirby and Amy were making films about sexual assault. Um, they made the campus rape movie The Hunting Ground, a movie uh, about sexual assault in the military called Invisible War, and more recently On the Record, which is about sexual assault in the music business. They really are kind of filmmaker activists, um, which probably gave them a considerable amount of credibility from the standpoint of of Dylan Farrow. Uh, But they really deployed their skills um, in an extraordinary way in in this series.
2: We're talking to Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter, for The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Rebecca, on the topic of streaming, uh, a new Harper's Magazine essay penned by Martin Scorsese takes aim at streaming platforms of which uh, he made a movie for, but we'll get into that in a second. Uh, what did he have to say and, and what was his goal with the piece?
1: Well, the piece is called Il Maestro and, it, and it's, he's sort of writing about Fellini's filmography, but he uses uh, Fellini as a, as a way to... Talk about how cinema has changed and in his view, how sort of the magic of it is being lost amid the onslaught of quote unquote content. And he hates that word being released by film studios and streaming companies. He, he draws the distinction between curation what he feels uh, you know art house cinema owners and people writing for the Village Voice film section in the 60s when he was reading it and you know sort of daring distributors what they what they did and the algorithms that contemporary streaming services use to recommend movies
2: I love how he described content though in 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 today's Hollywood he says content is is basically what a cat video Super Bowl commercial and a David Lean movie <laughs> they're all they're all labeled <laughs> Content,
1: Right, right. He, he, he <laughs> sees those things, obviously, as very distinct artistically. <laughs> but his point is that to, you know, the modern uh, business of entertainment, they're not. You know, if it draws an eyeball, if it draws eyeballs, then it's just content.
2: But he dipped his finger in the streaming movie Pie, too. I mean, does he acknowledge that?
1: He does. I mean, The Irishman, uh, which he made for Netflix and his next movie, which he's starting production on in the spring, Killers of the Flower Moon, he's making for Apple. These were both supposed to be Paramount movies until their budgets became so much that the studio couldn't bear them. So he's benefiting from the enormous resources these uh, streaming companies have at the same time that he's critiquing their impact.
2: You know, last week, I spoke to a Mank director, David Fincher, for an interview that's, uh, I think, airing uh, this week. And I told him that I that I I've saw Mank three times, first on my phone, then on my tablet, and then on my laptop. He laughed, he laughed, but he said that he doesn't really lose sleep thinking about uh, all that when he makes movies. Do you think this kind of, I hate and I hate to throw Martin Scorsese on the, the bus because he doesn't know who I am and I know who he is, but do you think this kind of Attitude might stop being an issue for future generations of filmmakers who are more used to this.
1: Well, first of all, it's great that David Venture was cool with that. I'm appalled. <laughs> you saw, you watched Mank on your phone. Like what? I mean, well, that's, that's where I
2: saw it first, so that's why I clicked
1: play. Okay, okay. I mean, I'm not sure we can still be friends after this, <laughs> but fine. But I mean, for for certainly, you know, younger generations of filmmakers have gotten used to the idea that they don't necessarily have complete control over the way their movies will be seen. Um, Firstly, for me, for my distractible adult 2021 (laughs) brain, I want the biggest screen, the most immersive room, the fewest opportunities to be taken out of the room. uh, And, you know, I kind of respect the extent to which Scorsese is is trying to encourage people to hold on to that against every industry force at work. I'm just glad Rebecca Keegan considered
2: me a friend at one time. (laughs) Rebecca Keegan, senior film editor for The Hollywood Reporter. Thank you very much. More Take Two coming up. Stay with us. Democracy needs to be heard.
6: This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. What does journalism have to do with democracy? The research shows that when trustworthy journalism thrives, so does civic participation. Reporters from LAist and NPR are here to keep your community engaged and informed. And that's why we need your support. By donating now, you're keeping journalism and democracy strong. Donate now at laist.com give. And thank you.
4: I get a good feeling, yeah, yeah.
2: Back Now, with more take two on 89.3 KPCC, in most places you get your podcasts. I'm Martinez. It's time now for a weekly check in with Nick Qua, the go to journalist covering the podcast industry and also the host of LAS Studios' podcast, Servant of Pod. In a recent episode, uh, Nick spoke with Sam Sanders, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, about the show and Sanders' path through public radio. Hey, Nick. Hello, hello. All right, first tell us about It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders. Uh, How did it come to be, and what can folks who have not listened uh, before expect?
4: Well, first of all, uh, I believe I should say that KPCC listeners uh, can get the shows on Saturdays, I want to say. (laughs) Um, So I'm told that It's Been a Minute was originally developed as a show to ultimately fill the time slot left open by Car Talk. the legendary show from yeah you know, click and clack and stuff like yeah. that. Um, that show came to an end back in 2012, and so there was always this this sort of slot like you know is there something interesting that can be can be placed here, and that's that's what drove the creation of its Binimit to some extent. As a matter of content, uh, I like to describe the show as you know, kind of a great example of a generalist show. So uh, Larry King passed away recently, and and I kind of like to see it's been a minute in that broad lineage (laughs) almost. It does some news. It does some arts and culture stuff. It has interviews with interesting and powerful people. It has some fun segments. Um, And the thing about generalist shows is that it essentially comes down to the core personality and that person's specific universe of interest. And, And Sam Sanders, by and large, is a really interesting guy.
2: So what's the structure of the podcast, and who does Sanders have on the show?
4: So the podcast drops two episodes every week, and they come in two separate flavors. On Tuesdays, it's typically a deep-dive interview with an interesting person. Last week, it was Deezus and Marrow, also known as the prominent podcaster's bodega boys. And a few weeks back, um, he had an interview with somebody like Robin Given, who's a Washington Post critic at large, about the future of fashion. You know, the list goes on. Uh, He recently had Angela Bassett on the show, Phoebe Bridgers, Kathy Park Hong. And on Fridays, what the show typically does is an episode that rounds up the news. And it does so in a way that, you know, feels a little bit more digestible and emotionally oriented than straightforward news products. You know, it's kind of it has this sort of feeling of decompressing the week, which is really nice.
2: Yeah. And you also talked to Sanders about his relationship with his listeners and the optimism that Sam brings to the show. How does that inform and shape the show?
4: Yeah, I was really curious about that optimism because I I know Sam somewhat off the mic, and I've always been sort of conceptually interested in you know like when it comes to host, like how much they give to people and how much they keep for themselves. It's something I've kind of always wondered about that structure, that position.
6: And here's what he said: the promise I've I made with my audience early on was optimism. It just mm. is, and so that doesn't mean that I'm always optimistic. In fact. I'm a negative Nancy, but <laughs> what I'm giving my listeners in the show is optimism. And so I can save my negativity. I can save my fears. I can save the nasty side of me for my friends. And I do, you know?
4: And I'm sure we could have similar conversations yeah. between you and me about that.
6: <laughs> yeah, that, that's hilarious, though, because
2: I think every radio show host or podcast host has two sides to themselves. And what the microphone does, it either unlocks something that they don't share in their private life or locks down something that they don't want people to know <laughs> from their private life. So to to take a cue from from Sam there, I overshare on the radio, but in private, <laughs> I, you, you could barely get me to say a word if it's... It's not in front of a microphone. So I understand how, for Sam, uh, it allows different parts of him to come out. We're talking to Nick Qua, host of Servant of Pod and founder of the Hot Pod newsletter. Now, last year, like so many of us, senders uh, devoted a lot of time to last summer's protests against police brutality following the death of George Floyd. And like a lot of podcasts about race, it's been a minute, saw some significant audience growth. Uh, what did uh, Sam have to say about this?
4: Yeah, so that was a pretty remarkable stretch during the summer. I mean, from a media perspective, for sure. Different forms of media experienced that surge in interest. You know, when it comes to sort of like media about race, uh, podcasting definitely saw a lot of that. Um, you know, looking at the charts, it, a lot of shows about race ended up pushing out shows about coronavirus. Um, and it's been a minute was definitely one of those shows that that kind of boosted up to the to the top of the charts. I he told me that the show basically doubled in audience mm. uh, during that stretch and continues to grow ever since. And I I asked Sam what he sort of felt uh, about seeing his show. Girl, under those circumstances and and here's what he said
6: it's it's bittersweet um Mm. i think you never want to think that some of your professional success came at came through the death of a black man Mm. that hurts and i'm still processing that i hope that the work that i've done in the aftermath of his death honors his legacy and his memory and The cause of what all this activist work has been the last year, which is for the police to stop killing us. Right. Hmm. So I hope that I've helped spread that message. But it is weird, you know, in the same way that it was weird to see the NPR politics podcast really jump off and boost my career a few years ago because of Donald Trump and all of the bad things he was doing.
2: Now, prior to It's Been a Minute, uh, Sanders covered the 2016 election and was an original co-host of NPR's uh, Politics Podcast. And before that, he spent some time at uh, three NPR member stations across the country. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Sam Sanders' path to and through public radio.
4: He has a really interesting path into public radio. Um Starts out over a decade ago. He was in graduate school for public policy at Harvard Kennedy. And he ended up writing his thesis with the Boston station WBR, And that's why he interned after graduating. He sort of like, you know, moved around to two other stations, Oregon Public Broadcasting, WNC in North Carolina. And he joins NPR in 2009 as a Croc fellow. and has been there ever since working his way up the station. He says, like, he's basically done everything. For all intents and purposes, he's been a public radio lifer. And of course, like, the interesting question is... You know, looking forward, right? Like, I, am I'm, I'm interested to in whether he is interested in being a lifer, and, and we talk a bit about that on the show too.
2: Now, how successful would you say Sam Sanders' podcast is, and where does it fit in on the sort of must listen scale for the podcast audience out there?
4: On objective sort of metrics level, my understanding is that it's been very successful as a show and as a product, and as as a matter of just like you know a creative enterprise and and something of a matter of taste. I love the show. It's it's something mm. that I feel is very, very sort of new for for form, and it's it's he's just such an interesting person, and he's a very talented broadcaster and podcaster. And you know, it, it's it's the show that's always a little bit surprising in ways that you don't quite expect, and and that's you know it's a rare it's a rare thing.
2: Well, if Nick Qua is listening, I mean, it's got to be the hippest thing on podcast airwaves anywhere. Now, did uh, Sanders talk about what's next for him and also the podcast?
4: He was a i'm not gonna say vague but i i kind of really pushed him on like do you like are you gonna stick around for a long time <laughs> like, like do you want to keep doing this for your life you know and he's like you know he's he he mentioned that he's like interested in a lot of things right uh, and you know, he did sort of like play around like that one one of these days maybe not now maybe not tomorrow but he is interested in like maybe doing some form of television that kind of <laughs> thing you know who is it right like... well
2: when the camera comes <laughs> calling you gotta answer
4: well, you know, America is a television nation, you know. Yeah. Um, my understanding is that he's very happy where he is, but somebody of that ambition, and, you know, he's a young man. I'm sure there'll be a lot of, we'll see a lot from Sam in the years to come.
2: Nick Quaz, the host of the LA Studios podcast, Servant of Pod. New episodes are out every single Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. Nick, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, we're going to close out today's show with a question for you, our dear listeners. Now, for the past few months, we've been checking in to hear how you're doing, how you're holding up as we all continue to navigate this uh, new normal that we're in. And as March approaches, we near the one year mark of California's stay at home order almost been, can you believe it, an entire year since everything, our whole lives, our whole way of being has changed. So we're back with the question, how are you feeling? Are you feeling hopeful, pessimistic, reflective, optimistic? Whatever it is, let us know. We want to hear from you. Call us. Uh, leave your message on our voicemail, 626-583-5281. That's 626-583-5281. Leave your name, where you're from, and how we can reach you and we will try to get your voice on the radio. that number again 626-583-5281 626-583-5281 tell us how you're feeling you can also find us on uh twitter we're on twitter at take two i'm there as well at amartinez la that's good for twitter and instagram thanks for listening thanks for trusting us with your time take two is back tomorrow at two marketplace is next